Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, is our sponsor for Season 5. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable data set of more than 1,500 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and counsel information. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Brian Kodik. And I'm Sadia Mati. Three of us are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance, 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% almost qualified, at least done with all the exams to become an English solicitor. Uh, (laughs) It was the weirdest exam and the most obscure format, I cannot tell you. And doing it in a mask as well, which was another oh, no. added level. But it was in person, at least. I, I had an envision that you would be sitting at home and just like doing tests on a computer uh, controlled by someone like, yeah. somewhere else. But you actually had to show up at a center and meet people. And, and meet hired actors who pretended <laughs> to have criminal cases against them. Um, That's amazing. It, it was so bizarre. It was so bizarre. Um, and then you had to have these like, you know, these pleasantries that were expected of you you know to have like your bedside manner like a doctor um so well, like you... hi hi dear client sorry about your loss because your husband i heard was murdered what can i do for you <laughs> yeah tell me about the estate uh-huh <laughs> oh you're convicted of criminal damage uh, due to arson by burning your ex-girlfriend's house how strange um <laughs> step into my office <laughs> yes please sit down we charge this much don't forget there's also contingency fee arrangements available and if you need legal aid please file this form oh my gosh is that so is i are you is that really how it, it, it is it's, that's one of the parts is an okay. interview exercise there's six six days with three different parts per day oh Um, And there's six different exercises. Um, So there's interviewing, research, uh, oral advocacy, writing, and drafting. So drafting is actually like filling out a form. For example, if you want to file a claim, they give you a blank claim form and the facts, Mm -hmm. and you have to fill it out as you would. It's honestly great. You know, if you asked me to do that in the US, I think I'd have more difficulty than I would now in the UK. So it is actually a really good exercise, but um, not I, in my opinion, a great gauge of, you know, competence um, to study what you need to put in for the date. And like, you know, when you're filling out a property conveyancing form, you need to write the number of the price and also write it out in words or otherwise you're going to get deducted. Oh my gosh. We got to love our jobs. (laughs) Where are you guys at home? I know. (laughs) Yes. Still at home for me. Uh, And uh 
maybe soon in the office actually i might uh, i might oh, see really? in the yeah i think so i think i've had it i think i am done with being at home <laughs> <laughs> hope it is over personally <laughs> that's it i'm like i cannot take it anymore so yeah change space for me probably next week i'm going to go in the office the truth is and i think it's the case for a lot of people now in london people are starting to go in slowly but surely i was in actually this week Ah, every see? now and then because I am the one who lives the closest uh, to our office and I have a bike now so so that makes everything a whole lot easier commuting and I went to about lunch on Fleet Street in London where there are a lot of law firms and offices and I've been doing that like once a month during lockdown and it's been the day after tomorrow feeling like total post Armageddon now it's actually starting to open up in London there were people in line waiting to get lunch and more places open <laughs> Really, that a bit like the like life is coming back. Yeah, wow. slowly, surely. Yeah. Here we are again. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we will actually meet physically, right? That's the plan. Yes. To, uh, to celebrate the season, like the finale of this season. Exactly. Yeah, maybe. but don't say too much because that that sort of uh, sets us up, and we have to explain what we have planned. Nothing <laughs> <and laughs> has a plan yet, so we'll see. There will be one or more episodes after this, <laughs> and then there will be a break. Yes, no promises. <laughs> um, Saudi, I thought about you when I was reading the news the other day, because there was a new case, again, a new renewables case against Ukraine, brought oh, by yes. Thomas Vale and his uh, boutique arbitration firm. So Possibly the, the first case that's actually brought against exactly. Ukraine. Exactly. I think... Oh, maybe you're right. I, I, thought case, it was, I, mean. I thought it was the second one, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's the first one. I read actually that there were a couple of other companies that had thrown as well um, further to this claim or even maybe before this claim. And I remember we, yes, uh, Brian, we mentioned it, right, at a mm -hmm. session on the renewable energy claim that there were threatened arbitration cases. So that's it. Now there's one live one. <laughs> I was speaking with Ukrainian firm and asked if we were going to expect an avalanche of cases. And they said, actually, that Ukraine has made it known that they are going to fight these. Um, so even if they were uh, parties were looking to initiate claims to spur on any negotiations, that may not be the route for most companies because um, Ukraine has made a kind of a declaration that they would be fighting this. Not mm. necessarily a formal declaration, but that's the, the rumor on the streets. Formal declaration of war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Binding. Now our lawyers for, you know, representing these companies must be going, yay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, interesting. It is also uh, a great thing to see that you have uh, such a cool case where uh, it's represented by a small boutique firm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think this that's is really great. this is not very good uh, podcast audio, but a while back we talked about the first time when we met Sadia. No, was that on on Chris Campbell's podcast? We talked talked yes. about on this podcast. Then we should also probably mention that uh, Tales of the Tribunal, our sister podcast, is is doing a sort of a crossover episode and interviewing the three of us both separately and together. And it will be out pretty soon, maybe even just after this episode is out. Um, we will link that when that happens. Anyhow. On that podcast, we talked about that meeting when we met, you and I, Sadia, in, in London for, uh, at a seminar for Russian-speaking lawyers in London, and we didn't speak Russian. We don't speak Russian, either of us. Thomas Weil was at that meeting. That was the first and last time I met the oh, guy. Yeah. Bring in the case. yeah. So that just goes to show how tiny, tiny, tiny the world of Russian <laughs> is. What were you guys doing at a Russian-speaking... Is that 
how we met. That's yes. so funny. Yes. I never took the train back to Cambridge from London because <laughs> I was at Cambridge at the time. I was there. I had a reason because the SCC obviously has a lot of Russian speaking cases and they, they were there at this. Uh, they were, Natasha from the SCC was on a panel. Oh. And just her. Uh, and I was I was living in Cambridge at the time, and I was just happy that someone from Stockholm was coming to London. But what you were doing there, Sadia, <laughs> I have no idea if you have an actual. <laughs> I just have a picture no, in my I'm... head of you guys going like da da. <laughs> no, at some point we had to introduce yourself. I remember and explain why we were there. And I, I said something like, I love Russian literature or something. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> this is not the right spot for it. No, to be honest, I think I had, at the time, I had some energy cases involving the region as well. So I was interested um, price revision cases. So that's also one of those things. Mm. Oh, the good old days where you could just drop by some seminar and meet some arbitration lawyers and learn something and have a free drink and then go home. And that was just like a Monday. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. But we also have an exciting bunch of stuff coming up in this episode. Yes. Which order are we doing things in? Are we doing Sophie Nappert first and me? Ah, you just just stole my thunder. I was going to announce the guest. Okay. (laughs) Everyone, everyone, let's, let's agree to forget what I just said. No, 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 no. Like Jill just said, uh, yes, we have the amazing Sophie Neppert as our guest, and she will be speaking to um, to to us about ArbTech. So uh, really looking forward to that. Definitely. And then I'm talking about a recent advocate general opinion, advocate general of the Court of Justice of the European Union in a response to a question uh, sent by the Swedish Supreme Court. It will go to the full court of justice as well, but for now we have an advocate general opinion that's very interesting, although I'm going to ruin everything by starting off and saying it's not really that relevant, the, the, the findings, but we'll get back to that. <laughs> Great podcast audio. <laughs> exactly. It's a useless Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then to wrap up the episode in a very, this is going back to season one arbitration station style. We will be talking about something completely um, non-legal. And that is something near and dear to my heart, which is airports. Um, I will be ranking airports. I will be judging airports. And I think this is, and Joel said this in a private conversation we had before this episode. What is it like, Joel? It's like recovering alcoholics talking about cocktails. Yeah. Because we, have, we haven't been to airports in exactly. a long time. Just like I've dreaming. been to fantasize over getting stuck in customs and losing <laughs> my, my ticket and getting some useless goods from duty free. Oh, um, oh my gosh. But I'll be that. ranking them based off certain criteria that I've laid out in a mildly scientific format. And I look forward to oh, seeing you both. This is so good. What an episode. Let's, <laughs> let's go. Yeah, so Sophie, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this arbitration podcast today. I'm really thrilled to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, of course. And uh, I mean, you, you're obviously, as we, we introduced you, you're known for multiple things, multiple hats. Uh, but one thing that I'm uh, particularly excited about uh, to talk to you about was your interest in technology. Uh, and uh, dispute resolution. And in fact, I mean, I'm sure you've written multiple pieces, but one stood out. I, I saw this article that you wrote on the impact of technology on arbitral decision making, and that was in 2016. So it seems like 
a lot, several years have passed since that date. Uh, actually, a, a number of things happened, uh, pandemic being one. Um, and I was curious, maybe we could start with that. What are your thoughts about this article now? And how has the pandemic kind of reframed the discussion on the impact of technology and dispute resolution? Well, first of all, thank you for choosing my pet topic uh, <laughs> as, a, as a, a theme for this conversation. Um, the one thing I will say is that 2016 or 2017, I don't remember when um, when it was published, is not that long ago. And yet, um, it's since then, uh, we've written a second article uh, in co-authorship with, uh, with Paul Cohen in 2019. Mm-hmm. And it felt like uh, uh, so much hap- ha- had happened. Uh, we couldn't. And we're about to to uh, to um, uh, to published uh, the third uh, installment on that. Uh, right. All of this to say that this is a topic that moves at a, at, at a fabulous speed uh, and that the law is not keeping up as a, as a field of practice and certainly um, as a field of regulation. Um, and I, I'm not I'm not criticizing. It's just it's just a, a statement of fact. And so if you choose to publish on this topic, you keep having to update yourself. Uh, the pandemic, of course, has been um, the cherry on the cake or the mm-hmm. icing on the cake. Um, and it, what it has, what the pandemic has done is, of course, um, forced us to realize that what we had st- stated in, in that first article about, you know, fully remote hearings where people were looking at us saying, you're crazy. It's not going to mm-hmm. happen. This is just <laughs> not going to happen. And look at us now. Um and so now, uh, what, just to give you a little bit of a taster uh, of what we're going to talk about in the third installment, uh, we're going to talk about hologram arbitrators. And people are going to say to me, you're mad. What do you mean hologram <laughs> arbitrators? But virtual reality, augmented reality, these are things where the technology is, is present, is existing. The problem is access and cost. Yes. Uh, so we're not, uh, again, uh, not looking at too far ahead. And, and hopefully what the pandemic will have made lawyers realize is that they need to engage with technological developments yes. um, because they are upon us. Uh, the future is now, essentially. Yes, exactly. And and I mean, you're mentioning hologram arbitrators, all of this. And in fact, your arbiter starts with uh, your, your article starts with a citation to Star Trek. I was going to say this is very <laughs> much... Uh, uh, Star Trek or Star Wars kind of, uh, you know, approach and, uh, and, and looking forward to seeing what it's going to be like. Um, and, you know, in fact, coming back to that, maybe you can develop a little bit more. It raises this question of technology and, and arbitration, of course, raises this question of access, like you mentioned, but also a lot of uh, very different ethical questions. Uh, for, you know, we've seen with the pandemic what those questions were with virtual hearings, etc. But I've seen that you've also created a specific forum of discussion for these issues, specifically called ArbTech. And uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that and why you created and what's it about? Of course. Um, uh, so, as you know, um, because because that's what you're doing now as moderator of OGMID, I... I um, I was on OJMID for uh, over a decade, and that gave me uh, a real uh, appreciation of the community that um, comprises not only arbitration, of course, but 
international dispute resolution practitioners. Mm-hmm. And I started obviously broaching the topic of arbitration and technology on OGMID uh, mm-hmm. during my time as moderator, but I very quickly realized uh, that the, the discussion to be fruitful, it's great to have lawyers talking to te- about technology to lawyers. It's, it's very interesting, but the real discussion has to happen in a multidisciplinary or pluridisciplinary environment with engaging with the people on the tech side, on the scientific side. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the ethical problems that you are referring to uh, are problems, for example, of algorithmic bias. Okay, Mm -hmm. These algorithms, these programs are coded by humans. Uh, Mm -hmm. When we are talking about um, procedure or arbitration or even court proceedings, we're talking about notions of fairness. We're talking about notions of due process. How do right. you put that in code? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that and the challenge is to get the coders to understand what's in lo- lo- the, the the heads of lawyers and how we express ourselves. What are the values that we champion? And and conversely, we have to understand how coders think, uh, how they approach the, the coding of an algorithm. Uh, so to so as to have a little bit of, of visibility or transparency, and so that's a long a long answer to your question. But that that's what animated me about ArbTech. I I wanted to have a platform where that conversation was taking place, and hopefully with those actors on the tech side. So we are obviously ArbTech is a very new endeavor. We launched um, we had a pilot group period uh, in the fourth quarter of of 2020. Okay. And just launched uh, to the wider public, quote unquote, now in February 2021. So it is a very young endeavor, but we already have uh, over 100 um, uh, participants, enthusiasts, Mm -hmm. technophiles, lawyers, of course, uh, academics, but also uh, startup entrepreneurs, um, developers, uh, people who are very much on the online dispute resolution side as well, Mm -hmm. uh, to have that conversation. And, and, and it is, um, I think it, 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 um, hit um, a spot where there was a need for a, uh, a forum uh, to uh, where people felt that the, no question is too basic and at the same time uh, you get um, a, a very vigorous exchange of views uh, on ev- on every level so so far so good fingers crossed i'm i'm very very pleased with um with how vibrant it is um uh, as a as a commun- as a as a fledgling community I think it was much needed. It's uh, when 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 you look at the questions that have been raised on the forum, it it seems like it's a it was a no brainer that this should have existed before. So well done in in putting putting that uh, forward. But you know you've mentioned it. We've mentioned a little bit of of the contents of the discussion, and I think I, I would like to dig a little bit deeper on on a few of those if 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 you would want to. One of those that you just mentioned is the coding coding aspect and the you know ethical problems that this this may raise how is that how does that relate to dispute resolution could you explain it a little bit more are you talking about coding um the outcome of a dispute potentially or what what did you have in mind when you mentioned coding um and the relevance it might have yes i mean uh, so to do with algorithms uh you have even now, obviously, uh, as we speak, uh, for a number of years, you you have systems that allow um, the search of voluminous um, numbers of documents, for example, mm-hmm. or data. Mm-hmm. Um, 
by by way of a system whereby you know you input a keyword or 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 a series of words and then and then you know the 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 algorithm sort of goes sifts through the information and and gives out um a certain out, output now right that's you have that in document disclosure for example yeah. uh, and that that's already very familiar to to many of us now um what we're talking about now and and that's also uh, in existence it's not science fiction is predictive um justice so exactly what you're saying you have at the moment systems uh, one of the most prominent ones is called prometia out of argentina which right. has been, have been set up to unclog uh, the the criminal justice system or courts so the more simple sort of binary disputes about the non-payment of a fine for example uh, are being fed into this um uh, this uh, algorithm that has been taught to um to reach an outcome on the basis of the you know the whole of the 33,000 whatever cases prior cases have been fed into it so it's able to look at a set of facts and come to a uh, you know a, a, a predictive conclusion which is then reviewed obviously by by a, by a human but the the percentage of accuracy is very high it is over 90% uh, accurate in the way that if a human had decided that case it would have decided it in the same way so predictive justice is something that exists now that can have a real beneficial effect you ha- you can see right away as well and i'm sure they use it for litigation funders or arbitration funders uh, when they look at, you know, what case to take on. Uh, right. this, is, this is a type of, of, uh, of tool that will be very, um, very useful and very time efficient. Mm-hmm. The other, the other um, coding that I had in mind, and this is something that I'm working on in my capacity as co-chair of the ICC task force on addressing allegations of corruption, mm-hmm. is uh, we are going to explore um, whether the use of those algorithms might be helpful in uh, identifying indicators of corruption or red flags. Uh, That is also a a technique that has been um, experimented with, that is existing, but not on the corruption side, rather on the abuse of public funds in a public procurement uh, context. So you can see, again, there's a ready analogy there, uh, and and the tribunal would be probably helped by in its in its assessments uh, of uh, indicators of corruption by the use of an algorithm like that. At the same time, and I raised this in uh, I think one of the articles that uh, Paul and I have published, it, you know that presents real questions for the decision maker. You know how free and how how much can I as a, as an arbitrator disagree? Uh, with mm-hmm. the outcome that the algorithm tells me. If the algorithm tells me I've gone through all this data and I think there's a 60% chance or 60% uh, presence of indicators of corruption, what, right. how can I probe that? Um, so, so this is what I was thinking about when I was talking about coding. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. I, I know how you use the word that this may help the arbitrator. So is your view that these tools are going to aid a tribunal as opposed to replace a tribunal? So that's up to us, right? People right. Keep, keep telling me, you know, we're, we're going to be taken over. I mean, this, this is the creation of humans, right? It is mm-hmm. up to humans to uh, decide where to draw the line. Mm-hmm. I, from the beginning, my stance on this has been, we are in control of this, even though there is, you know, a black box, even though there is a machine learning 
means that uh, we lose control of how the machine learns and what it learns and how it deals with things. At the end of the day, it is very much up to us to uh, put these machines at the service of the process um, and to optimize the process, because there is no question that 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 the machines do better than humans certain tasks that involve, you know, voluminous number uh, number of documents or data, accuracy. Uh, but at the same time, humans uh, carry out certain tasks much better than machines ever can. Multitasking is one of them. Mm-hmm. The question of equity, the question of um, uh, the whole side of, um, of, the, of the dispute resolution process as, as a catharsis. As uh, all of this is uh, remains very much in the realm of um, of human capability, and and that's the way that it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we should. I mean, and, 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 and to a certain extent, it seems like we're already using a lot of these tools. Like you mentioned, predictive justice that's probably been used by some litigation funders and might in the future, I mean, near future, used by by tribunals. Is there something in particular as well that you've seen? Maybe in the last, I wouldn't even say five years, I would say maybe in the last year with the pandemic that has drastically changed, um, you know, not just the virtual hearings, but something else that we're using technology more in, in dispute resolution. I, um, I mean, I, I, I cannot uh, I cannot say that the pandemic has brought about uh, a, um, a, a, a heightened use of dispute resolution uh, of, of technology and dispute resolution aside from obviously uh, remote uh, tools. Right. Um, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, you know, as opposed to had there not been any pandemic, I, I am not sure that there would have been. What there has been is a complete alertness to it. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 uh, a focus on oh my god so now we are having uh, you know these these remote hearings what next mm-hmm. um, and and I and if not only in the operation field I think uh, state courts have been looking at this very very closely mm-hmm. and if uh, and and I think the arbitration community should very much follow what's going on there because that's not at all different from what what we do as a process uh, and, and and the challenges are the same really mm-hmm. so I so I wouldn't say a heightened use of technology but more awareness and so that when I there is um, there has been for example uh, just to show you the link between uh, the remote hearings brought about by the pandemic and mm-hmm. the uh, awareness of um, legal tech and the impact of tech on the practice of law Right. Uh, you know the the the, the much uh, talked about phenomenon of Zoom fatigue. Yeah. Uh, the 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 sort of toll that it takes on the human mind uh, and and the body for that matter. Right. So that's something that we've all experienced. Um, I wrote a, a very short piece um, with um, Mihaila Apostol on on Clure Operation blog last year on this. Mm-hmm. Recently, uh, in February, um, a professor at the University of Stanford, the director of their virtual stroke human interaction lab has uh, has written a, a short article on that topic, but uh, trying to find scientific bases for what causes Zoom fatigue and giving, you know, the, the what are very commonsensical tools to, um, you know, to ease the problem. But what he's saying is that uh, that's what when I was talking about hologram arbitrators, uh, 
he's he's talking about this with a straight face because his lab is looking uh, at uh, virtual and augmented reality mm-hmm. uh, and the impact that it has on human behavior. So if you put yourself in a virtual environment or an augmented reality environment, his lab is looking at the way in which humans behave. Uh, in his, he's not looking at the um, legal field at the moment. He's looking more at, at for example, putting a, a human in an environment where they would be uh, a black male in America and how people react to you. So as right. to change uh, people's perceptions of the other, uh, so as to change attitudes to racism. So you can see straight away how... If you put uh, now switching tack completely and looking at the orbital process, if you put the orbital process in a virtual or augmented reality um, mm-hmm. and, and you put your arbitrators there as hologram arbitrators or as, you know, virtual people, avatars, mm-hmm. how that would change uh, the way that the process is perceived, how that would change due process, how that would change equality of arms. These are all open questions that I find fascinating on a metaphysical perspective. And again, as I'm, what I'm saying is that this is not for tomorrow morning, obviously, but it's not for 15 years from now either, because the cost of that technology is now prohibitive, uh, but it is, as, as with everything else, it will go down and it will right. be accessible. Right. So what you're saying is basically if I were to, um, you know, in this augmented reality um, world, uh, which is not, you know, so far away, because, you know, in Zoom, in Zoom hearings, we can change your virtual backgrounds. Right. So what you're saying is I could actually even change my avatar. And, yes. you know, maybe not choosing a cat filter, but maybe putting something else and yes. and see. And that would change the perception of the tribunal. I could do that. Um, and what those questions that that's really, really interesting question. Actually. Can, and, and also, I mean, very much in the in the arbitration uh, field, you can also envisage how uh, the gathering of evidence or the taking of evidence right. would change, because instead of relying so on such heavy, uh, you know, witness statements. Uh, that are, you know, arguably it has been said there's a school of thought that says that they are completely fabricated and, and not very helpful. Mm. But just the reliance on document, documentary evidence, as opposed to, for example, putting the tribunal in the actual virtual environment where the dispute arose. A site visit is a very good example. Of right, that. right. It would be a completely different experience. That tribunal would be plunged into uh, a recreation of how the dispute took place, how the, the work was performed or not performed. And then you'd have, obviously, uh, a, you know, you have to, to, to look at questions of how do I probe that this recreation is actually true to form. So you can see straight away uh, the, the fundamental possibilities that this presents in terms of the process of arbitration and updating it um, in a way that would be Hopefully, closer to um, to coming to a, a just and fair result. Right, and you could do that all virtually. You didn't well, that, need that, people to be point. together. That right. Thought, yes. And and so th- I think that's a question on a lot of people's minds: is Do you think um, what I mean? We're we're already already of course seeing the positive aspects of of you know being able to connect um, and do remote remote hearings, the cost aspect to it, the the green aspect to it. And yes, there's the negative impact of Zoom fatigue. But 
you know, aside from that, what is your view as an arbitrator, as a, as a you know, ex-practitioner? Um, is, don't you think it's better for us teams to be together physically uh, for hearings? I mean, that's the million dollar question I think people are asking is now that we're going to be hopefully be allowed to travel again. Um, if you had the choice and you'd be able to travel again and reconvene as we used to before, would you go for it or would you just prefer to do it remotely? I, again, I don't, I don't think this is a binary question. I think, uh, there is a human aspect, uh, a human alchemy, alchemy or chemistry aspect, uh, to the dispute resolution process that is completely lost, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the Zoom, um, platform, mm-hmm. uh, or certainly if not lost, largely, largely replaced by something, um, that I find, uh, is difficult to deal with in the long run. Um, I, I would certainly um, think that or envisage a process that would be cheaper by virtue of putting procedural hearings online, yeah. uh, but having um, hearings on the merits um, in person. Um, I, um, I, I, I envisage that because we've now been deprived for a fairly long time, actually, uh, of human contact, there will be a rush uh, to have everything in person. Uh, just it's just natural, right? And right. then maybe things will settle a little bit to a hybrid that will be cost efficient. Uh, the, that's that's for the process. Uh, to me, uh, where uh, I, I I really see um, benefit to the um, the remote um, gathering is for the conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think that, that there's a, a much needed um, sort of um, hoovering <laughs> that needs to be done uh, to to put to put that thing uh, that phenomenon of conferences uh, under more control. And Zoom is great, or any any remote platform is great to reach out to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may not always be able to afford to have access to the knowledge and the insight. I think that's right. fantastic. Uh, and, and, and again, I could see a mix um, of uh, remote uh, and, and in person. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think also if you think about the objectives, right, of a conference is, is you know, the sharing knowledge aspect of it and the, the brainstorming ideas. It's, it's, it's great that we can connect with different jurisdictions and, you know, remotely and, uh, you know, there's not this prohibitive, prohibitive cost now. But on the other hand, there's also this objective of, you know, making connections, right? And making connections often goes, you often really bond with someone over, over a drink, honestly, whatever you're drinking or, you know, during the, uh, during the, the breaks and the, the, all the, the side events there are, there are linked to the conferences. So, I mean, on a personal note, I, I really miss that. I really miss it's, 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 uh, I would say that it's, it's more difficult to create a connection, or at least with someone, um, remotely than it was in person. So I'm, I'm hoping for a, a half, half, you know, yes. I, I think I think definitely the the future looks like um, we have, but but it's nice to have the option, right? Uh, right. I, I think that's Absolutely. the whole point is is to have that option of being able to either um, have the convenience and um, uh, the cost efficiency of of attending remotely, and then if if there's an op- an opportunity or to to do it in person as well, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, listen, we're 2021. 2031, Sophie, 
What does a, a, a tribunal, or if they still exist, I don't know, what does a dispute resolution look like in 2031? You've mentioned holograms. Maybe you have something else in mind? Um, to me, uh, I think the big uh, development going forward um, is the phenomenon of um, what is now called, I think imperfectly, blockchain arbitration. Right. Um, so there, and, and I say this because um, from a perspective of access to justice, uh, right now you have 14% of all retail transactions taking place online. Mm. Uh, that that amount will, that percentage is predicted to go up to 23% in 2023. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine by the, your date of 2031, maybe let's say 30%, uh, assuming 90% of millennials, generation mm-hmm. Y, are on uh, social media. Mm-hmm. 75% of the generation above them So these people live online. Right. Uh, we live online. We transact online. The disputes arrive on, uh, arise online. Mm-hmm. These disputes are for small amounts of money between people who may never meet again, who don't have an ongoing relationship, mm-hmm. and they require uh, a solution, a resolution that is immediate and that is cheap. And that goes completely under the radar of arbitration as we know it. Mm-hmm. And and most state court systems. So there is at the moment uh, a very powerful force of very bright people who are developing uh, ways of uh, resolving these disputes with humans, not, not with algorithms. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a, there's an algorithm aspect to it and, and the choice of decision makers, but at the end of the day, we're talking about human people. Um, and, and that uh, development, I think, whether we like it or not, uh, is going to keep growing because it's an, it's, that is another no-brainer in terms of, of efficiency and, and speed and immediacy. And it will, it will because, of, 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 because it mirrors the values of social media, which is the more likes you have by peers, the better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's worth a lot more to the users of social media than the musings of three random arbitrators chosen by word of mouth. The, the, the judgment of their peers is important. Mm-hmm. And that is what that movement is capitalizing on. It is emerging. It's experimental at the moment. Ten years from now, I think it's going to have made headway. And the challenge for arbitration is we have to recognize that it exists. Uh, there are huge challenges in terms of due process, fairness, uh, interaction with the off-chain world uh, and the New York Convention and the courts. Right. Of course. Of course. I mean, none of this is, is, is um, these are very important questions. But what I'm saying is that for arbit- because because it starts, it's, it's a classic disruptive element. It starts with a very small aspect of our market that we're incapable of addressing for costs and time reasons. Right. And then if, if that works well and it has the, uh, the trust of the users, um, it, it might well take a larger portion of the commercial market. And I think we need to be aware of that, to recognize the phenomenon and to work alongside it, because there is obviously a spectrum of disputes and there's a place, I think, for everyone. Okay, so increase of blockchain arbitration. Yeah, that, that sounds that's uh that that actually sounds like it might happen in the next year or so more than in the next decade to be I honest, mean those I applications yeah. are there already 
and they are they are um you know they are functioning there are right. disputes but now these disputes are obviously quite esoteric at the moment very crypto based um mm-hmm. and and that's that's an image problem uh, on their on their side obviously but uh but cert- certain of these uh of these startups are, are being funded mm-hmm. uh by the European Commission uh, amongst others uh and by the French state uh in order to develop their product to a more mainstream audience so mm. th- so this is happening now obviously uh and and so it's not just me being inv- evangelical it's uh, it's a it's a reality right right well thank you so much sophie uh for all your time i i, I see we're uh we've we've passed the the 30 minute uh, of discussion on this but in the last few minutes that you have please would you have any announcements that you want to make with respect to arp tech you said it's very much you know uh, in process right now so how how do you get in touch you know to to get involved and is there any specific project that people can get involved and how how can they do that absolutely uh, so uh, we uh, we are we have q and a's um every twice every month or so with experts the next one uh will be on non fungible tokens uh and we've had one recently on the use uh precisely on the use of a of ai and algorithms in uh corruption oh, field um so to get in touch with us we have a linkedin page um and so you can simply uh look for arptech there you can uh reach reach out to us on linkedin you can reach out to us on twitter at arptech uh, underscore hub And uh, by all means, uh, we are very happy uh, to have participants who are interested and enthusiastic. So please get in touch. Terrific. Thank you so much, Sophie. I'm hoping that uh, this uh, uh, we, we our podcast is listened to cross jurisdictions. So we're encouraging people from everywhere to, to get in touch with Sophie if you're interested. Sounds fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I'm looking forward to doing another interview in 2031 to see where we are. <laughs> Likewise, si Dieu me prête vie. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much. So Brian said in the intro that Happy Fun Time, which we are yet to experience, will be a throwback to season one where times were easier and we did not prepare as much. That applies also to this segment that I'm going to do now because we have not consulted any researchers and not really thought this through at all. It's just I've I've read an opinion and I have some opinions about that opinion. I'm going to try to explain it to you guys. It's just an opinion. Yeah, and we'll express our opinions on your opinion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the opinion station. It's perfect. <laughs> so just so that we situate everything where it belongs, this begins with an SEC award rendered in an arbitration between PL Holdings and Poland based on a bilateral investment treaty between Belgium, Luxembourg, and Poland. So it is an intra-EU treaty, which is why we care about this. Poland lost the arbitration, challenged the award in Stockholm, and the state argued, among other things, of course, that the ECMEA decision of the Court of Justice, which, by the way, was rendered after the arbitration and after the arbitral award had been rendered, that the ECMEA decision um, meant that there was no arbitration agreement, basically. We are very familiar with the various iterations of this particular jurisdictional argument. 
the Svea Court of Appeal in Stockholm wrote a lot of interesting things in its judgment, but for the present purposes, it suffices to say this. Poland had raised this issue too late, both in the arbitration and at the set-aside, because the state did bring an ACMEA objection during the arbitration, but only in its rejoinder, its last substantive submission, and not in the first submission, which is when you must bring jurisdictional objections under the SEC rules. In other words, Poland was precluded from raising the ACMEA objection at the post-award stage because they had already lost the chance to do so because they didn't do it in time during the arbitration. This was kind of an elegant way out, I think, for the Swedish court. They did not really have to grapple that much with all the various intricacies of, of the ACMEA objection. But the court also said, and now we're getting into very interesting territory here, that by not objecting, validly at least, Poland had entered into a separate arbitration agreement by conduct with the investors. And this separate arbitration agreement is somehow different from the treaty-based arbitration agreement, which the court agreed was clearly affected by ACMEA. So just legally speaking, the arbitration clause in the bit is no longer valid because of ACMEA. That is something that the Swedish court uh, has an issue with because ACMEA says what it says, basically. However, in the Swedish court's view, this was something different because Poland had entered into a separate arbitration agreement directly with the investors when they participated in the arbitration without objecting. Um, so we're dealing with something kind of novel here, that, that there, there's an arbitration based on a separate agreement and not based on the, the bit clause. And Poland appealed this appeal court finding to the Swedish Supreme Court, which granted the appeal. Very, very rare, but obviously this is an interesting question that has not been tried before. So we are now in the Swedish Supreme Court for once. And the Swedish Supreme Court decided to ask the Court of Justice for the European Union for a preliminary reference about this separate agreement. And I'm going to read the question. And I know I am not the only one who detests the way domestic courts frame <laughs> their questions to the European Court of Justice and, and how the European Court of Justice <laughs> responds to them. Why don't you write a PhD about it, John? <laughs> This is the question put before the court, the, the Court of Justice. Does ACMEA mean that an arbitration agreement is invalid if it has been concluded between a member state and an investor, where an investment agreement contains an arbitration clause that is invalid as a result of the fact that the contract was concluded between two member states, despite the fact that the member state, after arbitration proceeding were commenced by the investor, I lost you. I know I lost you a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> stop. Make it stop. Make it yeah. stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, such good content in this episode. <laughs> Where's the punctuation? Yeah, I mean, there, there's like nine subclasses in this. Even reading it, and I tried to. I think when this came out, I was still working at at I Reporter, and it was only in Swedish, and I had to translate this unofficially for I Reporter into English. And I was like, I can't. They're going to think I don't know English because the Swedish in original is so bad. And is it is it just one sentence just to confirm? Yep, it's one sentence okay. with, with uh, I'm counting now, there are four subclasses in that sentence. But basically mm -hmm. they're asking, we accept that ACMEA says what it says. The treaty clause uh, is not uh, valid. There's no jurisdiction under that. What does, does, the, what does ACMEA say though? <laughs> That's the problem. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but in this, I mean, we, we in, for an EU member state, 
I okay. least I think it's it's not controversial that after ECMEA, the arbitration clauses in in uh, EU intra bits are no longer valid. Okay. Okay. In terms of domestic law and EU law, that then for arbitration lawyers, the question is often, what does this? Should we care about this? And what does international law say about this? Mm-hmm. But in terms of EU law and Swedish law, that's not controversial. But what they are asking here is, can an EU member state still participate in an intra-EU arbitration if it does so without raising the ACMEA point? So can you can you waive ACMEA to put it uh, more mm-hmm. carelessly, basically by by conduct? Okay, so now we're in the CJEU. Uh, not yet, really, actually, because in some cases we first have an advocate general giving an opinion, and that's what we're looking at now. This case was assigned to the German advocate general, Julian Cocotte. Julianne, it's the, I can't even pronounce, she's German and it's, it's like Julian, but the female version in German. <laughs> you want to pronounce guidance. it the French way, don't you? <laughs> I do, but <laughs> I refuse. Julianne Cocotte. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense, but she's German. Oh. Okay. Whatever, I'm going to go with Cocotte. Uh, <laughs> She is a former professor and public international law specialist who's been AG for almost 20 years and is a very well-known figure. She's written a lot of these opinions. And she is, I would, I dare to say, very well respected in the world of international law, especially for someone who occupies EU law office. And for some reason, Brian, I happen to know that she has an LLM from American University. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) We're growing. Interesting. Anyhow, this AG opinion is not binding on the court, uh, but often persuasive. We do know, however, from recent arbitration history that the court may deviate from the AG opinion. I don't know if you remember, but that's what happened in ACMEA. The AG first came out with an opinion that made the arbitration community very happy. And then, well, then the ACMEA judgment proper came. (laughs) Yeah. And then then there was commentary about the AG opinion versus the decision itself and we're just exactly like... and we may have this again now will it remains to be seen i guess but, but first mm-hmm. let's just go through what ag kokot said about the swedish court's creative solution that an eu member state can enter into a separate arbitration agreement by not raising ECMEA. and my reading is that she endorsed this approach with some caveats and some very cloudy language that makes it a bit tricky to answer definitively but let me try and I should say first that there are a lot of member states here uh, involved, like actually making submissions in this, including my home state and the state of the court that posed the question. I think there are eight or nine EU member states who actually made submissions in this case. So there are a lot of uh, people following it. AG Kukot found that this kind of individual separate arbitration agreement between an EU investor and an EU member state may still remove disputes concerning the application and interpretation of EU law from the EU judicial system in the same way as an investment treaty between member states. So it, we still have the same basic problem. that this, this takes EU law away from the EU legal order, so to speak, even if it's a separate arbitration agreement. However, it depends on the case. And in this case, the Peel Holdings one, she found that the tribunal could engage in application and interpretation of EU law, partly because the subject matter of the dispute, which was some banking regulation stuff, and partly because of the applicable law. So in this case, it seemed that there's a risk here that the tribunal would end up applying and interpreting EU law, which is not okay uh, in, under EU case law in general. You will recall, though, 
that the ACMEA decision expressly made a distinction between treaty arbitration, not okay, and commercial arbitration, okay. Because in the latter case, the arbitration agreement is, and I'm probably quoting now, or almost, freely entered into by both parties. Something like that is what ACMEA says about mm-hmm. commercial arbitration. Mm-hmm. Um, which is super strange, I think, Uh <laughs> That that applies to treaty arbitrations as well, of course. But the distinction is, I think, to, to me, that's the strangest part of the whole like me thing. Anyhow, for for our present case here, couldn't one say that when applying this admittedly super strange analysis, we are dealing with something similar here in the form of this separate arbitration agreement? So if if we accept this legal fiction that the state and the investor enters into a separate arbitration agreement, separate from the treaty, isn't that like a commercial arbitration, something that the parties have entered into directly? of the free will. No, says the AG, and she makes a different kind of distinction b- between parties operating on an equal footing, such as in commercial arbitration, uh, or disputes that relate to the exercise of sovereign powers by a state, such as in this case. That kind of arbitration is more problematic to allow within the EU legal order. So I said that she ultimately kind of approved of this type of separate agreement reasoning, but so far it sounded like uh, she's just emphasizing how risky and bad it is for the EU legal order. Mm-hmm. The key part for her and the reason it seems like she actually accepted this separate agreement reasoning is ironically also the most confusing part of the whole opinion. It's the extent to which domestic courts may act as a check on the arbitration. She's saying basically that the risks to EU law that she has identified and that we all know about can be mitigated if member state courts can comprehensively review the arbitration award for its compatibility with EU law, including, if necessary, uh, through a preliminary ruling request to the CJEU. So this is the key part and the main takeaway from this whole opinion is that she approves in theory, in abstract, of this idea that EU member states can enter into separate arbitration agreements despite ACMEA to the extent that member state court, basically the the court at the place of arbitration, is authorized to comprehensively review the award and make sure that it complies with EU law. And she does not mention what this means. She does not answer the facts here. That's for the Swedish court to do. What is a comprehensive review of an arbitral award? She kind of hints that the Court of Appeal in Sweden did not do this at all. But on her reasoning, it's not clear exactly what the Swedish Supreme Court is to do with this award (laughs) at all. We still have the the Court of Justice actual judgment coming up. We'll see if they go with this. But uh, and review of jurisdiction is a favorite topic of mine when it comes to domestic courts. And I think it's interesting that this is very live here. I'm not sure what she means. Like if the question is, if, if courts, domestic courts can like make sure that EU law is effective, then everything is fine. And it seems to be a question, not about the outcome of that rule, but more about the authority. Like can domestic courts make sure that EU law is being complied with? Then if so, this is all okay. But we don't really know what that means in practice. And I am happy not to be a Swedish justice. Would it mean by asking a prejudicial um, um, question? Yeah, I think so. So that she, she says that expressly, that mm. that includes that. But I mean, in this particular case, then that's what they did. 
in the first place, the Swedish court, to, to find out whether or not this was okay. And then they get the question back, yeah, it could be okay if, if you are authorized to review everything, including by asking us again. So maybe we'll see another preliminary reference about the scope of domestic court review of separate agreements that deviate. Anywho, that was my, to wrap this up and go back to what I said initially, why this isn't relevant, I think, at all. Practically speaking, I don't think this is a very big issue for future cases. So, okay, even if an EU state can, in theory, consent to intra-EU investment arbitration, not knowing what they know now, why would they? Like, this only happened because Poland didn't figure out that they had to raise this objection in time. No EU member state is going to make that mistake in a new intra-EU investment case. It's going to be very hard to argue in the future that an EU member state has consented to ignore ACMEA. I don't think that's very a scenario that we are all looking forward to is it's going to happen many, many times over. But the, the, the way it's been discussed in like academic discussions and the free blog post that I just saw is that it may have a wider ruling because it, it could be read as saying that under certain circumstances, you can enter into direct agreements, like contracts or whatever. I don't know. You can do a lot of other things as investor and EU member state without running into the ECMEA problem as long yeah. as you're not in a treaty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if she's saying that you, it's if the main idea is the equal bargain between the parties when you enter directly. Exactly. And like <clears> our <throat> friend Gover, to the EU law expert, likes to say the whole thing with Agmea that arbitration lawyers often stumble on is that it's not arbitration that is the problem. It's the investment treaties. It's the mm -hmm. treaties themselves and their removal of certain things away from the EU order. That's the problem. It's not that they hate arbitration. It's that the treaties are not deemed to be uh, welcome. Mm -hmm. So if you just sidestep the whole treaty thing, there's a room to arbitrate separately. And they are. There are multiple contracts that refer to that actually have exit clauses in there and, and that are the basis for um, treaty arbitration. People forget about that. Right. Very good point. All right. That was it. Um, well, I think it is re it's relevant, not potentially on the dispute side, as you mentioned, but maybe on the transactional side and saying that, you know, this wouldn't completely, ACMEA doesn't have the effect of completely thwarting FDI if states wish to have foreign direct investment, they can enter into party-specific contracts that can also refer to arbitration. But is it controversial or, um, you know, have, having a domestic court, you know, how can you ensure that a domestic court comprehensively and accurately applies EU law? I have Isn't no that idea. inherent in I mean, they're bound by EU law by virtue of their, you know, member state. Yeah. So, so what I would say, and this is in many ways, this is very close to my dissertation topic. I would say that at least in Sweden and in many EU member states, when it comes to jurisdiction, which this is a question of jurisdiction, mm -hmm. the courts will like look at it from scratch. They will very comprehensively review all of the jurisdictional arguments. And, and as you say, they, in doing so, they are bound by various EU law principles to ensure right. the effectiveness and the the enforceability of EU law. So on paper, I think one could make the argument that most EU members actually have the authority to do this. And then whether or not they do it, and if so, how, that's another question. But it doesn't seem like that's what she is after here. She's after the point of authority, not the, the outcome of the right. analysis. Right. But it's, it is, it's now, well, it's going to the, to the Court of Justice. And uh, I'm, if I were a Swedish Supreme Court justice, I would be hoping for a bit more clarity and and what comes out of the court but i guess we should not do that learn we have learned from recent experience a quick question when there is acmea the decision 
I know that they didn't follow the opinion of the AG at the time, but did they even, did they refer to it? I have a, a slight memory that they didn't even refer to it as if it hadn't even happened or something. No. Yeah, I don't think, I, th- I think you're right. I think, may, I mean, that's easy to, to double check, so we might be wrong, but that's my sense as well. And even if they did, it was so It's useless. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, I mean, many courts have this system where you have sort of a preliminary instance first, yeah. and then it's in the discretion of the court what they do with it. And it basically just depends on how persuasive it happens to be. Hmm. We shall see. We shall see. We shall. Watch this space. For the happy fun time, it is Friday when we're recording at 4.30 p.m. So I do not judge you if you decide to open a drink at this time. But we will be talking about something that is arbitration adjacent, which is the amount we travel. And I know this goes against Joel's, um, you know, goal in not dramatizing how, you know, glamorous arbitration is. But we do travel a lot. It is part of it is part of the job. And I think uh, a lot of we, it- we, we did. And it was. We should probably talk about this in past tense. Says the person who started this episode saying, oh, so I put my backpack and I go on my bicycle around the city to go to work every day. We can all agree that biking is not sexy the way business class. No, it's sweaty is what it is. (laughs) The way business class, exactly, which is one of my criteria. So what I've done today (laughs) in order to give some structure to the seemingly aimless discussion of airports is to categorize and rank airports in the following categories. Um, And I've ranked them according to a comprehensive or a cumulative score based off the distance to city. Yes, Joel? Can you share a screen or is it written on the paper? (laughs) No, it's written on my Remarkable 2, which I talked about on a previous episode that I have. Okay, but but it's not remarkable enough to share it on on the (laughs) Zoom. It's uh, unremarkable. I could share it with you, but for the interest of spontaneity and putting you on the spot, I will keep it all to myself. Okay, perfect. The categories are distance to city, technology, meaning ability to access Wi-Fi easily and also... Um, in the lounges, shopping, because sometimes you forget your tie on the way to a hearing, Uh, connections to other cities, and then finally, and least scientific, is the beautification of the airport. Now, number one and two, I would have to say, are actually, I might start at the the bottom of my eight. Oh, no, I've, I've listed 10. And at the bottom, I've listed... New York, JFK and Charles de Gaulle. I mean, JFK and LaGuardia in the same category because it is not close to the city. It is horrible (laughs) technology. It is ugly. The shopping is terrible. And connections to other cities, you have mostly American airlines there and they don't go to most places. Atlanta has better connections than New York. I think we can just like table this. We can all agree. Yes. Right. I, I think I they, agree. Too. They are terrible. Yeah. terrible. I'm happy I don't live in New York for this Custom, reason alone. I mean, terrible. Okay. Number nine and controversial, starting off the bat, is the hamster cage that is Charles de Gaulle Airport. Mm. It is not pretty. And going through those hamster tubes in that weird oh, cross right. section on like a mildly bouncing trampoline thing that they have on those conveyor belts. I. 
I find it so. But they play La Vie Rose when you arrive in France. <laughs> that that is all just like. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's to make you feel better on how horrible because La Vie is not en rose in <laughs> Charles de Gaulle. Um, yes, it is not great. And then just to throw you both into the um, trash in the beginning of this segment, I'm also going to put Stockholm Orlando up there, uh, down there, and in the rankings because. First of all, SAS is has a horrible business class and a horrible like economy plus. And that airport lounge at SAS is just terrible. The food yeah, is terrible. I, I've, I don't think I've ever been inside that one. I'm much less bougie than you, so I'm not going <laughs> to... You get like a sandwich. And, like, it's, it's not great. Can um, I ask you though, Brian, not to undermine the science, but mm-hmm. when you say distance to city... Right. I mean, traveling time or actual distance? Because the You're right, makes a lot of difference. Some places have very fast, very expensive ways of getting to an apartment, uh, to an airport, sorry, even if there's a long distance. You're right. The Orlando Express is very quick and energy efficient and uh, a nice trip through the countryside. Uh, but it is expensive comparatively. And if you don't take the Orlando Express, you have to fight with taxis. And a lot of people get duped because, and this is a note to everyone, that the taxi system in Stockholm for Sweden being this like, you know, amazingly egalitarian city where everything is above board to have like cons at this taxi queue outside of Arlanda Airport, I think is um, a really negative for the airport. Free enterprise, man. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the opposite of the Swedish way of life. <laughs> okay, now for the better, th- the better and least, maybe less controversial. I would say Heathrow is number six. And the reason why I would say that it is far from the city and horrible to get to. You do get a nice view coming into the, uh, coming into the airport over the right. city. Um, and the, the shopping in Terminal 5 is, is great. And there are connections all over the world. So I would say, and they've just redone their um, business class and first class. So mm. if you are traveling on business, then it is a good airport to go out of. Um, number five, Joel, we had a personal experience in here. And that I would say Doha Airport is um, was beautiful and technologically like superior to anything I've ever seen and connections all over. I have to say, I honestly thought we were in Dubai. No, because we flew Qatar. We went through Doha. <laughs> did you guys mind... confuse Doha and Qatar? Uh, sorry, Doha and Dubai. <laughs> did you just? <laughs> no, I, sorry, I, did. I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> we all did. <laughs> have you been to Doha, Sadia? No, I have not. No. Oh, it's no. it's like a theme park. Oh, really? It's, yeah, yeah, it's really nice. Um, we, that was that was actually on arbitration station business. That was on our way to Ica in Sydney that we had uh, a layover there. Exactly. It was really nice. It was like a seven hour, we showered and ate. Yes. And financial times. It was really nice. Really nice. Exactly. And I, th- I would put that into one of the categories that I put that into. Um, next up, number four, I would say Singapore. Can I ask you, Brian, like the 10, are these just airports you've been to? Is, I have been to the, all of these airports. Yeah, and well, that's think, the category, but oh, the 10... I you, did you some research. 10 airports randomly? For example, I've been to Hong Kong, but I don't remember how great like how great or poor it was, mm-hmm. but I think it was. it is ranked as one of the top tech and beautiful airports um, in a lot of rankings, um, but I, I don't remember it. So these are mine, and it's a basis for discussion. Um, 
But I have Singapore at number four because um, it is a beautiful airport, beautifully constructed, lots of access to a lot of the Asian countries and um, the Asia Pacific, and um, great airline um, altogether as well. Number three, Joel. Happy for happy to say this to you, Copenhagen. I've mm. put at number three. Oh, why is have that? You to, have you been to Copenhagen? Not to the airport, no. Okay, it's three tube stops from the airport to Copenhagen city center. Okay. And it's amazing. That it's like amazing. 10 minutes. It's the best neighborhood in the city, basically. The airport's just an extension of a nice neighborhood <laughs> with amazing food and drinks and shopping and shopping. very good. I, when I lived in Copenhagen, I would like go out to the airport, no joke, like an, an hour too early just to like decompress, have a drink or a cup of coffee, depending on the day, and like read a little and look at nice things and go for a walk. It's such a perfectly wow. designed space yes exactly it is very well designed um the gates are categorized like logically and it's it's not in a straight line but it divides like quite nicely and so you're from leaving the city center to getting to your gate is a seamless process and it's very well done i would say number two and number one i don't know if they're i don't know which one i would put number two number one but i would say amsterdam schiphol Mm. is mm. a great airport close great shopping connections everywhere klm is an amazing airline i have a good story from klm i flew into washington dc when um all those blizzards were happening it was not only in dc but also in london they called it the beast from the east and in washington dc they called it snowmageddon and every airline was canceled except for KLM. And I asked them 10 times, I said, are we still flying? And they said, of course, we're still flying. <laughs> and we were the only airline to get out and uh, to land in DC. So they are a great airport <laughs> and very close to the city and um, really beautiful and some nice tulip shops and- um, a, a Tulip shops? <laughs> Is that a category? Is that-, that is a category. <laughs> yeah. How many tulip boutiques do they have? <laughs> can, can we guess what your number one is before you? Read yes. It? What's I, left? Because I, I really have no idea. That's what. I, yeah, I, that's I, what I was thinking. I was like, I don't know. And this I, is I, unexpected because it's not like it's not a sexy city. But uh, I, okay, then I, I might have a guess. Okay. I was first thinking it might be some like continental American one that you would surprise us by picking like Atlanta or something. But I, I think you're much too arbitration. Atlanta's so I horrible. Think I think it's Frankfurt. <laughs> yes. It is? You got it. Amazing. Why is it Frankfurt? Oh, I like Frankfurt too. It's beautiful, well-connected. Lufthansa is an amazing airline. Um, it's 10 minutes to the city center as well even though Frankfurt, a lot of people don't like. I like Frankfurt specifically for one bar, but um, it's, uh, I would, and it has the most connections and it is the busiest airport, but whereas Heathrow completely shuts down when it gets too busy, Frankfurt, probably owing to German efficiency is just, has the most, and I think I saw this on one of the rankings I researched, um, the most on-time arrivals and departures. Hmm. It's a very good showcase of like German soft power, German brand, yes. basically. <laughs> And as we enter into like, you know, traveling again and getting back on planes and starting to visit clients and, and foreign offices, I think um, a lot of people talk about this in conferences and, um, you know, casually in arbitration circles. So that's why I thought it would be a fun topic. It and is I've a been fun dying topic. to talk about it. You're making me nostalgic of those times where we were traveling yeah. and just I had um, a part two of a hearing this week, actually, two days of like 
finalizing a hearing that was supposed to be in Frankfurt. Oh, really? In Frankfurt this week, yeah. So you would have been to Jimmy's Bar, my favorite bar in the entire world. <laughs> yes, I would have had a Monday night in Frankfurt. That would have been okay. it. Monday, Tuesday hearing. I'm not, not sure right. I would go out to. <laughs> not <your> ideal. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, please send us comments and tweet at us if you think that we missed one of your favorite airports. But um, I think traveling, you know, up in the air style traveling is on the horizon for us and i can't wait to get back and start complaining about my delayed flights <laughs> let's hope so thank you this was a good segment Brian. yeah <laughs> thanks brian make a list quick and easy ones that i didn't mention that were you know thank you for being nominated are lax um japan narita was and i've never been so that's probably why i didn't list it and then um madrid barajas is up there on a lot of lists Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally Vancouver because of its art, actually. Oh, but I don't know how much arbitration is in Vancouver, so I left it off the list. Chris Thomas is in Vancouver. Very there we go. <laughs> what about Abu Dhabi and Istanbul? I had great memories of these airports. Istanbul is great, and Turkish Airlines has the best food of any airline yeah. I've ever been on. Really, really good food. I was just going to say the food was amazing. And when I was, I was just for a stopover in Abu Dhabi, the airport. So I just literally just stayed in the airport and didn't go out. And, and how was, was it? It's a really good experience, but I wouldn't be able to tell you more about. <laughs> yeah. In terms of, you know, distance to the city, I had no idea. <laughs> so. I'm sure it's close. I mean, all the Emirati airlines and mm-hmm. airports are great. I mean, they have so much space and money to to funnel into it so they they've obviously done a great job well that's it i hope to see you guys flying soon thanks email us the arbitration station at gmail.com and tweet at us the arb station we did you see yeah maybe i shared with you that a listener tweeted at us that uh, Joe Biden said that America is the most unique idea in history. Oh, yes. <laughs> you should listen to the arbitration station and learn proper grammar. <laughs> that was so funny. That's what Twitter is for. Exactly. <laughs> All right, guys, take care. Bye, everyone. Bye. No, no, it's okay. I'll do it because I, it's fine. Don't worry. It's okay. Thanks a lot, guys. You too. Bye. Not for me. <laughs> bye. Bye.